Hello and welcome to The Book Album, your place for everything related to reading and language. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gens. Now, bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello and welcome to the show. Hello and herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. We are celebrating 250 episodes today. Round of applause, maybe? Amazing. We're learning how to celebrate small wins a little bit better than we have in the past. We did a couple of fun episodes that I'd encourage you to check out. Those are in the show notes at relevanceofliterature.com notes. For episode 100, we baked dark chocolate cookies with my brother. For episode 200, we did an extra special horrifying classics episode on a really wonderful book called The Doll Master and Other Tales of Terror by Joyce Carol Oates. That's a short story collection. But we didn't really celebrate, and I would love to celebrate this short win with you all by going over none other than Knight's Gambit by William Faulkner. This definitely lies in the realm of short fiction for William Faulkner, although it is quite a bit longer than the other shorts in the collection of Night Gambit, all of which we have reviewed in previous weeks on the show. We are finishing thus our Faulkner detective fiction series today with Night's Gambit, and I couldn't be more thrilled to start off with some biographical information on the short. So Faulkner first attempted to put this short story out there and publish it in January of 1942. Unfortunately, although fortunately in retrospect for us as readers, the short story was not accepted anywhere. And at this point, the short story had all the major plot points, all the major characters in it, although the names and uh, traits of these characters do change a little bit over the course of the story's iteration. But the short story was a bit shorter in length at this point in time. Faulkner's philosophy on revisions to his writing essentially included additions rather than subtractions. So there are sort of typographical corrections that he'll make, but on the whole, a lot of his revision process is adding to the story. This is especially prevalent in the last short story that we reviewed called An Error in Chemistry, where Faulkner had to add 19 lines of text to actually explain the error in chemistry to people who grew up outside of the South and wouldn't understand how to make a cold toddy. Now, by June of 1942, this short piece was 60 to 75 pages in length, and by May of 1949, a notable seven years later, the final typescript was 161 pages. As I mentioned before, the key plot elements of the short story remain the same throughout all of these various revisions. Notably, there was originally a first-person narration by Chick, Gavin Stevens' nephew, which got changed to a third-person limited narration, also from Chick's angle, but again, not from that first-person point of view that the original drafts of the short story showcased. 
In terms of this edition from Night's Gambit, edited by John M. Duvall, I have expounded upon the amazing work that Duvall has done in this edition for every episode probably of this series. I think his editorial additions and revisions to the short stories are masterfully done and set kind of a high bar for similar works, especially in Faulkner's Au Bois that are to come. Essentially for Night's Gambit, there were small changes that Duval discovered from a very unthorough copy editor, and these small changes he mostly restored. There are, in addition to those small changes, typos in the original uh, published version, and Duval goes on to describe all of these uh, various errors and typographical mistakes as a quote-unquote comedy of errors on page XXX. I'm going to read to you from the last passage here. This is again from page XXX of the introduction. Quote, Perhaps the clearest index of how poor the copy editing of Knight's Gambit was is the inconsistency of the supposed corrections to quote-unquote sitting room. Faulkner himself was not always consistent, sometimes using quote sitting room, sitting with a space between sitting and room, other times sitting room with a hyphen in between them, and once as an adjective sitting room, all one word. But whatever Faulkner used, the copy editor often changed in an almost random fashion. After allowing sitting room, with the space in the middle, to stand a couple of times, the copy editor decided, after seeing Faulkner's sitting room, no space, as an adjective, to change sitting room, with the hyphen, to sitting room, with no space, except when this individual misses certain subsequent instances and sitting room, with the space, reappears uncorrected in the typescript and thus also in the first edition. I have also decided always to restore Faulkner's choices with notations in the appendix that allow the reader to see the comedy of errors that sitting room of the space becomes." Unquote. So clearly I was sort of adding to this passage to underscore the different uses of sitting room, which don't have obviously different pronunciations or something like that, but um, the quote stands, just know that the quote doesn't have those descriptions of sitting room. I was adding that for your audio pleasure. And I think that that's quite notable, especially because the original stories from this collection were published in magazines of almost unanimously high caliber, and Faulkner often got his sort of top choice, the Saturday Evening Post, for the short stories. Um, you know, an error in chemistry, Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine, like, he wasn't super into those kind of more sensational publications, but all the same, what ended up of these short stories after their initial publications was quite frankly great you know editing whether or not it was like loyal to Faulkner's style is another question and whether or not the changes actually add a lot is another question and something that Duval 
um, quite efficaciously brings up in this edition with his anti-revisions or quote-unquote de-editing of these short stories. Um, but that's all to say that the editing often went towards serving a specific audience with these short stories because the publications that were publishing his work knew, okay, we have this certain audience, for example, during that time, one relevant factor was, were they Northerners or Southerners? That had an impact not only on the language that Faulkner used, but also on the cultural elements, whether he had to explain them or not. Um, also, the relevant publications had to look at things like social class um, and look at what different groups wanted to read, whether the various short stories were appropriate or applicable to the style of writing that those kinds of groups wanted to read at the time, um, and whether in some cases those short stories could be adapted to the different groups that the magazines were catering. So one thing that I find fascinating is in a sense, John and Duval, what he's doing here and his quote-unquote de-editing of all these texts is also serving an audience, but he's serving a different audience, a notably different audience, one of, for example, scholars like myself, or serving individuals in the present day who would like to read Faulkner in a different way than Faulkner was presented to them before. Notably reading Faulkner with a sense of what he would have wanted in his original typescripts with his revisions in mind and not the audiences of the magazines that published his work. Let's get into the plot. So it starts out, again, this is a third-person limited narrative perspective, so we don't go get any eyes in this narration unless it's in dialogue. But Stevens, our detective figure in Faulkner's world, and his nephew Chick are playing chess. They're playing chess one night, and they're sort of like, this is their before-bed pastime, it seems like. And they get an intrusion um, of two siblings named Harris, um, two R's, two S's. Uh, and these two siblings barge in on the chess match, kind of not only uninvited, but very rudely. So they kind of just walk into the house, find where Stevens and Chick are playing chess, and they walk in. The siblings proceed to give a very bizarre, almost, show to Gavin Stevens and Chick, who is now in the audience. They know that Gavin has some sort of influence, whether it be politically with sort of the sheriff and other type of figures, or indeed with the law itself, and it seems after this whole charade that the brother's goal is to get rid of the man who is engaged to his mother, and his name is Captain Galdray. And please forgive my Spanish-French pronunciation. I'm going to be saying Galdray. That's probably incorrect. So the brother, again, wants Galdray out of the picture. He goes through great lengths 
to convince his sister to play along and it seems like the sister gets caught in a lie that she doesn't want to tell. They leave sort of empty-handed and the event just leaves a bizarre mark not only on Stevens's head but also on Chick's. We then transition in the story to sort of an origin story of sorts of a small farm girl turned rich widow and the mother of the Harris siblings uh, was a just small, normal farm girl and ended up marrying a very wealthy man who made a lot of money out of state, invested in the property. They kind of live in like, you know, the only place with electricity and indoor plumbing and things in the area. They were driving a big stagecoach, which was eventually followed by cars. And, you know, they're that kind of almost patriarchal family that like to be seen around town, but not necessarily interacted with. And so this story of this farm girl leads into the European adventures that she ends up taking uh, as her husband eventually dies. And then she takes these two children to Europe with her and it seems through a lot of the postcards and things that she sent to Chick's mother along with some of her other original friends from the town that she's kind of just a small small town girl in a big world <laughs> kind of that's the vibe that I was getting at least from this part of the story. So finally after the family moves back to this little town after their European adventures. Captain Gaudrey shows up and he becomes sort of like the male figure of the household. He is obsessed with horses, you know, Knight's Gambit. We start out with chess. Um, there is like sort of a kind of Knight's Gambit chess move type of thing that's later in the short story. So Gaudrey ends up training a bunch of horses. He's very into things like polo, uh, but ends up getting a sort of mysterious project. And the project is he buys a mare, and this mare is almost completely blind, but he's training her quite hard and in the middle of the night. And so he's training this blind horse to do things like jump over obstacles and it seems like sort of this trust exercise slash exercise of wills. So he keeps the mare in a separate stable as his other horses, kind of like divorced from the estate a little bit, like it's kind of out there. And then he trains her only in the middle of the night when her vision, which is poor, will essentially be nothing. Um, so this is his mysterious project, and he's very convincing of the fact that nobody needs to come and see his training of this horse in the middle of the night. So it's kind of this, like, open secret. Back to the Chick and Gavin Stevens thread. Chick and Stevens kind of let the whole affair go. Stevens always seems to have something working in the back of his head, so that is definitely a factor here as well. Uh, and Chick eventually finds out that the boy, 
so Harris, one of the two siblings that originally visited them in the beginning, um, Harris has bought this extremely volatile, extremely violent rogue stallion from a local farmer. And this local man uh, bred horses or breeds horses and had the stallion, didn't want to waste the stallion even though it was completely violent and completely feral, essentially. And so the boy has bought this stallion and he tries to make an alibi for himself by going away. So this stallion, I should mention, is like murderous. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been around wild horses. Growing up in the Southwest, I certainly have, and I definitely know how dangerous they can be if they're untrained. Um, I saw one time a cowboy, a literal cowboy, like that was his job, being a cowboy, going to different ranches. Um, his job was to train stallions that weren't quote-unquote broken yet is the term we use in the southwest sometimes and um, I saw him training a stallion um, during a week that I was doing some camp slash work at a horse ranch down in my hometown um, and it was violent um, I was really scared for him although he's he was very trained and very quick um, but yeah when these stallions are not properly trained and they're sort of they untrustful, distrustful of people, uh, they can be very, very dangerous. Um, and so this is a horse that is quite dangerous. He's full grown. He has a lot of hormones going through him. Uh, he's distrustful of people. He sort of trusts the farmer um, from whom the Harris brother bought the horse. Um, but at the same time, the farmer is not going to be around for what the brother has in mind with the horse, uh, which we'll talk about in a second. So this Harris brother is up to no good with this horse. And he ends up going to a different city, sort of driving there so that people see him and that even the police end up seeing him. They talk to Gavin Stevens at a certain point in the short story and eventually does come back. So essentially makes an alibi for himself that he couldn't have bought the horse. He couldn't have um, done what is to follow. Stevens and Galdray end up at the very big house with electricity and plumbing um, the night that Chick finds out that the Harris brother has bought this horse. We learn in the course of this fun fact that Stevens speaks passable Spanish, um, a fact that I find um, quite lovely actually and quite interesting. So some of this conversation, it's reported in English of course because we have this limited third person perspective following the nephew who speaks sort of ish Spanish, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm guessing probably elementary Spanish so he's not tracking everything they're saying in fine detail, but they're, he's kind of piecing together what he knows of the situation and what he's hearing. Um, but they proceed to have this conversation in Spanish, where Steven said, basically, I will bet you or I'll sort of <laughs> do you one better if I end up being wrong in this situation. And he's saying, what do you mean? I'm just doing a routine sort of training session with this blind mare I've been training. And 
eventually it comes out that the Harris brother has put the angry, murderous stallion in the off-site holding place that the blind mare was normally in. So he's essentially traded the murderous stallion for the blind mare. The trick here is that because Godrey did not know that that murderous, very powerful horse was in there, when he opens the doors to the stable, and this is a hypothetical situation, but if he were to open the doors to the stable, the horse would essentially come out and stampede him and seriously injure, if not kill him, because of the way that the horse interacts with humans, it's very malaligned, it's etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So what the Harris brother has done is essentially attempted murder through a horse, right? Because Galdray would be unsuspecting and you know, Harris would essentially say, what's wrong with boarding a horse on my own land? That is the problem we walk into. I'm going to read from page 160 of this edition, and this is the last paragraph on 160. This is when the horse comes out of the stable, and the whole sort of mystery that Stevens has uncovered, and it's being uncovered to Chick and Galdray, this is when it all happens. Quote, it came out screaming. It looked tremendous, airborne even. A furious mass, the color of doom or midnight and a moonward swirling of mane and tail like black flames, looking not merely like death, because death is stasis, but demoniac, a lost brute forever unregenerate bursting out into the moonlight, screaming, galloping in a short, rushing circle while it flood its head this way and that, searching for the man until it saw Mr. McCallum, the farmer, at last and quit screaming and rushed toward him, not recognizing him until he stepped out from the wall and shouted at it, unquote. So I think Faulkner does a great job of articulating what a present threat this horse is um, for people who are unaware or haven't worked with horses before. What ends up happening, this is where sort of the other spoilers comes, come in. Um, the sister, so there was a sister in the beginning, the Harris sister, she ends up marrying Galdray after this whole affair. So the brother... Stevens convinces the brother to enlist in the army. You can, you know, see by the timeline of this short story started in 1942, published first in 1949, which war it is, and what the situation was. So the brother ends up enlisting, essentially instead of being arrested for this crime, or this potential crime. Uh, Gavin Stevens essentially stops this crime from happening. The sister ends up marrying Goldray instead of the mother, which is sort of a surprise, but not really when you find out this last bit, which is that at one point before sort of the World Wars, Stevens was engaged to the Harris's mother. And so 
Harris's mother, who was thought to originally be engaged to Captain Godrain, was actually engaged to Stevens at one time. Then Stevens goes to Europe and he ends up sending some, he mixes up his mail and he sends mail from, um, for like some German woman he knows in German and he sends that to Mrs. Harris instead of his letter. So she ends up dumping the engagement and sort of moving on and marrying the rich farmer, etc. And at the end, they end up reconciling um, Stevens and Mrs. Harris. It's kind of a strange ending, honestly, but a good one to the entire short story collection, if you think about it. Um, Harris ends up getting married and sort of settling down with Mrs. Harris, which is kind of the most unexpected ending, at least for me as a reader, I kind of viewed Harris as this sort of like distant figure on the edges of this society, but then again, like, so is Mrs. Harris. So it's a kind of a firework of an ending, um, and Chick ends up like at the end visiting with Stevens, and it's kind of this very a touching almost like familial scene and one that we haven't had to a super great extent within these short stories all right let's talk about some cross literary analysis so certainly you know compared to this to the other five short stories in this collection this is the longest it's novella length Um, And this is also, I should mention, late Faulkner. So this is late in his career. This is after The Sound and the Fury, which was published in 1929. This is after Absalom, Absalom, which which was published in 1936 originally. Um, Those are kind of his two, like, flagship works. Of course, there's, like, a ton of other Faulkner that we read in school, etc., as I Lay Dying and Light in August are two notable works also from a similar period in his writing style. Um, and, you know, The Sound and the Fury and Absalom Absalom are kind of his flagship works for me because of their stream of consciousness style and how developed he has that style in those two works. Um, they're extremely complex, highly, highly would recommend reading them. Um, And this work is actually more similar to Intruder in the Dust, which was first published in 1948, and Go Down Moses, um, a novel of his published in 1942. Um, And so these are, you know, late in career works. And also what I love about this short story is you can kind of understand how long he sat with the short story. Um, This is, of course, the title piece uh, of the short story collection. So the short story collection is called Night's Gambit uh, as well. Um, And it does piece together, although Stevens doesn't actually solve any murders or mysteries in this, he sort of prevents one. It does kind of have all the hallmarks of Stevens's existence and his curiosities and his quips um, and also his relationship with Chick, as well as with other people in the community, is highlighted more so than in a lot of the other works. Um, so each work in this collection is is different, and I would make an argument that 
It showcases different features of Gavin Stevens and of this little miniature part of Faulkner's fictional world. Um, but Night's Gambit, because of its length, because of its scope, does showcase a lot at once. And let's wrap up this series, shall we? Honestly, this was one of the most enjoyable, not only books, uh, short story collections for sure, um, but series that I've done in a long time, that I've read in a long time. I thoroughly enjoyed this. Um, I have not gotten a look at Faulkner's detective fiction before this series, and I want to thank you all for hanging in with me because this not only allowed me um, to read the short stories, but also to sort of reflect on them in a way that I don't normally get the chance to in my independent reading. I love that this new edition by Duval is so academic. That was one of the things I think that drew me to it when I was at <laughs> the Faulkner bookstore in New Orleans when I purchased this book. Um, I just loved how academic and the type of work that Duval put into this book. Again, I think it's masterful. I think he did an amazing job. Um, Mr. Duval, if you're listening, I would love to interview you and learn more about your process for uh, putting together uh, and de-editing, quote-unquote, this edition. I learned tremendously from it, and I definitely grew as a reader from this experience. And... Again, this showed me a new side of Faulkner that I'm excited about. Um, I would especially now like to read more of his later works. I think Go Down Moses would be a, a really interesting read for me. Um, and it does follow, I would say, this general trend, not only of my personal reading, but of the podcast in the sense that we are reading more um, American literature from the South of late, including Carson McCullers, and we a couple years ago reviewed some Flannery O'Connor. Um, there are others that not only we've done, but we'll get to. <laughs> and so with that, thank you all so much for hanging with me in this series. I super enjoyed it, and I would highly, highly recommend getting a copy of Night's Gambit, edited by John N. Duvall. See you next week. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.